Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Value Inspiration podcast. My name is Ton Dobber, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration. The purpose of my company is to help business software companies rethink what can be to become remarkable again. The goal that I have with this podcast is to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. So my strong belief is that we can think big, and therefore we should. And doing so will help to create a better world for all of us. And this podcast is all about that. The guest on my podcast this week is Joe Urbany, co-founder of Venly. So many companies, most if not most companies make decisions about strategy and tactics that don't fully account for the views and the perceptions of the people who determine their success, and that is customers. So, so many companies operate on, on the basis of our maybe past knowledge or our best theories and our best intuition about what customers value. and. And what we found over and over, and, and really this, this came out of my executive MBA teaching in a big way, there were significant gaps between what business people were thinking or predicted and then what customers actually said. And when you close those gaps and make decisions better aligned with customers, the impact can be enormous. No one is immune from that. Is that we, when we invent something, even us, I mean, we, at times, you know, you invent something and you get enamored with that invention. And, you know, often the coolest inventions today are technical in nature. And it's much more difficult to see, well, how does this play out in terms of commercially viable, validated product that, that really solves a problem for somebody? This is Joe. He's a core marketing faculty member in Notre Dame's MBA program and the past associate dean of the Mendoza College of Business with numerous publication credits related to customer decision making and growth strategy. In 2010, Joe co-wrote a book entitled Grow by Focusing on What Matters, Competitive Strategies in Three Circles. The premise of the book is that growth and competitive advantage are about effective positioning. The model facilitates speed of understanding and action by focusing strategic attention on what impacts customer decisions. It's been applied in over 800 MBA projects at Notre Dame, and it's the model that led to founding Venly in 2013. Venly brings the model to life through the use of collaborative technology and providing a platform that makes an already fast and very intuitive process even more accelerated and streamlined. Being a marketeer by heart, this triggered me, and hence I invited Joe to my podcast. We explore why marketers experience so many issues in increasing the performance of their content. We address why it is not the lack of technology that sits in the way, but the approach we take to creating content. And that's a relatively easy thing to fix. By listening to this podcast, you will learn three things. Firstly, by starting with the big idea and crystallizing your value proposition is not only going to help marketing perform better, but actually everyone and everything else in your organization, simply because of the power of alignment. Secondly, 
How rethinking who is our real competitor is not only going to increase urgency and improve win rates, but also fine-tune the value of our product investment. And thirdly, what value we can unlock when our solutions provide new insights and aha moments, and how this could rewire how an organization thinks and acts. Well, welcome to my podcast, Joe, and for your availability and making the time available in your agenda. Sure, thanks for the invitation. Exactly. I found you, I think it was through a newsletter, and I got, got some information about the company Venly that you, mm-hmm. of course, co-founded. And when I was looking at the website, I thought, wait a minute, this is something that, that, is a, that fits perfectly with, my, with the purpose of my podcast. So hence, uh, inviting you. But before we start, can you describe yourself, well, to my audience, can you describe yourself in a couple of words? Like, what defines you? I would say, you know, growth-focused Really, I mean, I growth focused both. I mean, hopefully intellectually around my life as a scholar, but more so around companies and organizations who are solving growth problems. So I've been lucky enough to be able to come up with a few ideas that have had traction in the commercial world as well as academically. And so, growth focused, I think, would be a good summary. Yeah, I mean, that's never a bad word to, to have because a lot of organizations, of course, want to grow. And I think it's an interesting combination, indeed, that you're saying both in the, in the business world but also in the academic world because you, you are a marketing professor, right? That's correct. That's yeah. correct. So I've been a marketing professor for over 30 years now. Okay, and, and you, wrote, you wrote a book, and the book, let me see if there's a title for that. Yeah, it's called Grow by Focusing on What Matters. Exactly. That's what the, the one I was looking for on my notes. And I couldn't find it anymore. So yeah, I mean, what, what came first, the book or the company Venly? The book. The book came first. The but the kind of the company was invented around the ideas in the book. So there was sort of a common development of it. The company came around because I was able to co-found it with an experienced business guy, former Microsoft executive named Gary Jago, who's also a Notre Dame alumnus. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, that's, I saw that and I realized your company is indeed from 2013. So, well, to get going on what, what I saw in your company, can you explain like, what is the big idea behind Venly? Well, the big idea is I'd use a word called alignment, and there's multiple dimensions of it. The first and kind of the original dimension of alignment was the discovery that so many companies, most, if not most companies, make decisions about strategy and tactics that don't fully account for the views and the perceptions of the people who determine their success, and that is customers. So, so many companies operate on on the basis of our maybe past knowledge or our best theories and our best intuition about what customers value. And and what we found over and over, and and really this, this came out of my executive MBA teaching in a big way, and that is doing projects where we had the my students for their companies identify customers, customer segments, kind of scope out and predict the value that they thought customers sought, and then go out and interview them. So a really simple exercise, yeah. and we just found over and over and over again that there were significant gaps between what business people were thinking or predicted and then what customers actually said. And when you close those gaps and make decisions better aligned with customers, the impact can be enormous. Yeah, of course, can you? It's all about, you know, resonating with your customers and that's where it all starts. 
So you typically see that uh, I mean, there's a lot of technology, for example, in the technology space, because that is my expertise. There's a lot of products being invented for technology stake and then looking mm-hmm. for a problem rather than the other way around. Yes, no, it's, it's a great point. I mean, it's, we, and I think every, no one is immune from that, is that we, when we invent something, even us, I mean, we, we, at times, you know, you invent something and you get enamored with that invention. And, you know, often the coolest inventions today are technical in nature, and it's much more difficult to see, well, how does this play out in terms of commercially viable, validated product that, that really solves a problem for somebody. And that's the classic, that's the traditional challenge in all of that. So it absolutely is true that we see those gaps. And in fact, we were where we just quickly segueing back into Venley's evolution in terms of that issue alignment, part of it is aligning with customers and their understanding and, and really building out, well, how do you uniquely, once you understand those customer values, how do you uniquely position yourself to provide a significant value and build a competitive advantage. And what we found was over time that, that so much today we were dealing with you know, a, lot, a lot, fair amount of product development and discussion and service development, but a lot of messaging, a lot of communications where there were gaps where uh, we discovered customers thought one thing that we didn't expect. And in fact, maybe they were wrong. Maybe we actually have a solution and we just haven't explained it well. So those gaps turned out to be very important to align in the world where marketing content is now so prevalent and, and such a critical part of communication strategy. So our second phase here is building a platform for what we call content intelligence, which is all about connecting connecting marketing communications decision makers more closely with customers around the customer journey with data and analytics to really get true alignment and then also aligning within the company around strategy. So that's why the word alignment really comes out as a core value for us. Yeah. So do you mean that with that alignment that it's not only marketing that is using that, but it actually translates into sales, but also, for example, product development? That's a great, that is a great insight. It's absolutely true. And the interesting part about it is, that, so of course, sales is the customer facing or a, a, the probably most critical customer facing unit in particularly in B2B. But in terms of marketing, content and the content that let's say supports the sales group in terms of generating leads and so forth, that content is coming from all over the company. So we may have uh, product related content being written by, you know, in engineering or in, in production. And we may have uh, pricing related content being written in finance. It's all over the, the company. And if the content is all over the company, the messaging is all over the place. It's a real problem. And this is why many companies have kind of struggle with getting enough efficiency and productivity out of the content development efforts. Yeah. And that of course leads to very low click rates, high marketing budgets that are more or less wasted, low conversion rates, low sales rates, high discounts, I can go on for a while. <laughs> Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And what's interesting, Tom, is that we have so much marketing technology available today. Yeah, you know, beginning with HubSpot and, and all the, you know, we, there's the, the latest is about, you know, 7,000 different <laughs> companies who are working in that space. But on the content side, what tends to be the case is that the tools are very good at helping organize content. Yeah. Uh, in other words, put it in the right 
categories for scheduling and, you know, keeping the a library and connecting the library and so forth. And so there's a strategy around there and, and some, certainly some analytics to help evaluate it, but, but not many are focused on overall strategy as it relates to driving a value proposition fully into that content and also developing, developing it fully for the different needs that customers have around different stages of their journey. And that's what we're, we're trying to do is, is kind of align content to the high impact around, first of all, having that value proposition. It's like in LinkedIn, you know, there's this concept of relevance of content. Uh, You can have a lot of content you can, you know, you can have very different kinds of content, but the issue is, is it relevant? Is it connecting with people? Will people click through on that content? And that's mostly going to be driven by, do you have a value proposition that's compelling it? And are you articulating it well? So that's our focus. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, product in my heart. And of course, that was also what I saw when I was first visiting your website. So what are you... Uh, good. I mean, since you've been in business, 2013, product has been established. What have you seen as the big turnaround for companies that, has, that actually start to use those, well, this type of approach? What is the opportunity? Here? Well, we're, you know, we've seen on a case study basis, you know, a number of different impacts you know, largely revenue, and it's largely due to more effectively spending dollars around a, a message and around a product and offering that truly connects with customers. Whereas before there was kind of our intuition or best guesses. And once we get into getting data around those questions around, around the customer's value and the utility customers are seeking, that various decisions can be made that really drive, you know, messaging more effectively. So we have an example of a a university that discovered a number of different customer segments. So they they had one broad message out there. They discovered a number of different customer segments and and were able to pinpoint where these folks were in, in particular stages of the journey and were able to address a number of concerns they had raised and had a an over a, actually a hundred percent increase in applications in particular areas. This was this was in, in fact a, a school that was in, in healthcare focused on healthcare. Wow. We've had a major steel producer make a very big decision about as opposed to expanding capacity, production capacity, which was one of the things they were considering for serving the auto industry. They instead, based upon the insights they got from those customers, they instead located a partnership center in Detroit. So because they they discovered how significant the relationship or the working relationship was with those customers. And there was this was something in the order of a $38 million return that they were able to track incremental revenue as a function of having that partnership center in place. So what we see, the impact we see are on the decisions that companies are making today as we speak, getting those decisions much more aligned with the value that the marketplace is seeking. And it turns out to have very significant revenue impact. With our content intelligence platform, we're actually in the, we're a year and a half, two years into the development, actually probably on 12 to 14 months into the actual development of the platform. So we are just coming out of kind of a beta stage, but we're seeing a similar kind of thing where we're, we're getting the conversations going about how organizations, in particular how 
marketing content leaders can you know ensure that this ocean of content that they're developing that, that each piece has a strategic purpose and that each piece is again aligned not only to the value the customer is seeking but also to the needs of a customer and the job they're trying to get done at every stage of the journey so what i'm curious about is how do you do this one of the things i saw on your website right. was you make it easy to understand how customers make choices where is the data coming from and how do you then yeah, kind of make that, that yep. magic blend? Well, there's actually multiple ways to do that. And, and part of it's just a classic distinction between, you know, we have qualitative research, we have interviews and a structure with which we get data directly from customers. But we, we, we're very particular in the process about getting to specific customers, you know, who are in particular situations, who have particular needs. So and that becomes the key is to get that focused. So not looking for broad, broad audiences, but to scope and really refine a focus on particular customers who are have high probability of doing business and are better in particular situations that we really need to understand. Let me make a small interruption here. Joe just made an excellent remark about how he's using technology to micro-segment your audience, i.e., target your ideal customer. This is a trait remarkable software businesses master. It's an essential part of their value foundation, one of the three big levers to grow their impact. But this is something you can master as well. So if you want to know where to put your focus to unleash the remarkable effect inside your organization, simply do the test. You can find it on valueinspiration.com slash remarkable index. Back to the interview. Interviews can get you very good data and then what we would call choice data. I mean, what values are going to make a difference between whether or not, whether the customer chooses you or chooses your competitor. We can do the same thing with surveys so we can get to a broader audience. And usually a survey will follow a more qualitative kind of study. So we can do that. We do that with an, on an ongoing basis initially to make some decisions and then as, as follow-up. But we also have developed capability to to use search data, Google search data in particular, to kind of make the same inferences. We're developing models and have developed models to look at search data in a particular category and identify the specific questions, the specific needs that, that customers or prospective customers are expressing. And we can, with our model, we can identify what stage of the decision journey they're at based upon a variety of identifiers and then specifically what needs they're expressing at those points as well as as well as what brands are getting credit and getting positive credit and equity and and then not so uh, positive as well so so today you know it's incredible what we can do with the data that's on the web because that's where all the conversations are taking place these days. I mean, we all all do it, right? We all do it when we want to find out the best restaurant or when we want to find out how to fix the, you know, the bathroom sink, how to paint the shed in the back of the house. I mean, we use Google to search and find those solutions. So it reveals an enormous amount of about customer decision-making. Yeah, and then you're, I mean, from the book, of course, that's, that's where you have your competitive model, the three-circle strategy model. And I think you're also using that in your solution, right? That's correct. That's correct. Because ultimately, you know, we can get insights about, about customers and what they value, and that's always helpful. But 
the choice that the customer makes is going to be based upon the relative value or the value you're providing relative to the value competitors are providing. And it's very important to understand from the customer's perspective, what is the competition? Again, I go back to the business to business space. Very often that comes as part of our scoping and framing. The customer may not be, I'm sorry, the competitor may not be a firm that looks exactly like you. Exactly. you know, so for example, the, a firm who's thinking about adopting new marketing technology today, very often the competition is the whole set of spreadsheets they have all over the place, yeah. you know, that they've been using to organize the tactical plans and, and their execution plans. And the fact is those, that's a very powerful competitor because that's routinized practice. We know how to use them. You know, there's inertia around that usage and it's, it's a very different, you need a value proposition against those spreadsheets yeah, yeah. than against this other competitor who looks like you for many of the customer prospects you're looking at. Interesting. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm impressed with what you were telling about the impact and I can only imagine that. I mean, I'm sort of an advocate of this whole, of what you're preaching here in terms of uh, yeah, relevant messaging, focusing on your ideal customer and getting the empathy in there um, mm -hmm. in order to really to re resonate with those customers. But then to find a solution that is sort of bringing to life what, what I'm also talking about in, in my career and, and my business is, is an interesting one. So in, in developing this, you said the solution is now, oh yeah, 18 months available, I, I think, what you said. So how, right, our, our, our content intelligence platform, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. So what has been the journey on that? I mean, what have been the two or the one or two things that have been, that have made this solution so, so powerful? You know, it, it's actually, it's a, that is a great question. It is the coming together, I think, of several principles that have always driven our business uh, and that we've had to articulate over time, but also with the evolution of content marketing as well. Right. Because both the principles sort of come together. The, the need for the principles emerges in today's environment. And that is the key, probably one of the most significant ones is I've already mentioned this, but we'll call it a principle of what we call small ball. And it's not, it's a baseball reference. Yeah. I, I don't want to spend time to fully explain it, but it, it's for those who know, it's sort of a, a money ball for those who've read the money ball book about the Oakland A's. And so, but it's about, you know what, get really focused on the next little goal, right? Get, get that runner to first base and then get the next yeah. runner to first base and move the other guy to second base, as opposed to trying to hit home runs all the time. Sure. So it's the idea of getting very specific, getting granular in the analysis, because that's where you understand the human being who is the customer. And even in business contexts, you're not selling to IBM, you're selling to that purchasing agent who's feeling pressure four o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon to meet deadlines and budgets and so forth. The more you can understand that human being, the more powerful your strategy will be. And we've now we've seen evolve as we've been, you know, applying that principle in other contexts, evolve the, the whole marketing content and inbound marketing paradigm, which is exactly that. You're way more effective if you can understand those moments, right? yeah. those moments of truth, you know, as Jim Lisinski from Google framed, those moments of truth where that human being is gathering information or thinking about the options or, or actually making a choice. So I think, I think the whole inbound marketing paradigm 
requires you to have that level of understanding. And that's kind of, that's where we originated kind of came from a different place because we found that just, just simply having conversations with customers were far more powerful and effective when, when you scoped out that, and then you use the term on ideal customer and it's, that's exactly it, but it's, Scoping and defining and framing that ideal customer in a very specific way. You know, a person with a situation who's in a situation with a need yeah. and, and going from there. So anyway, I think that's probably the, the biggest principle, first principle. The second principle is that that person chooses based upon a comparison of, of value, yeah. one option to another option. And it may be the option they have in hand versus you. It may be you versus another competitor that looks like you, whatever, but they choose based upon relative value. And that's where the three circle model comes into play to help you kind of scope out what, what are all the dimensions of value that provide that are critical to that customer and how can you own a very compelling, unique part of that value? Yeah, I agree with that. That's exactly where the magic starts to arise. And also it li- aligns with the thinking that I have not put up in my, in my upcoming book. But to illustrate a little bit of how this works to the audience, could you give a little bit of an example of that? Sure, sure. And, and I think it, there's a how and there's a why it works as well. So the idea is to understand the drivers of a customer's decision-making more deeply than you have in the past, because that actually is where the magic is when it comes to uncovering maybe needs that have not been met or uncovering misperception. So, for example, one of the early cases was CEO of a small company, small specialty recycling company, a company that only worked with steel mills and recycling sand from steel mills, which is called foundry sand. It turns out that sand is a big, a very important component of casting if in the foundry business, because it's it's used for molds, so it it can be shaped to a perfect mold for anything. It is it withstands heat. It doesn't react chemically to anything. So sand is like a perfect molding agent. They use lots and lots and lots of it, but it only they can only use it so long, and then they have to get rid of it. And so this is a company that's a recycling company. And you, when you look at first blush, if you ask them, well, who are your customers? They would say, well, our customers are steel mills. All right, and. That's fine. A lot of times when you ask people about customers, that's what you, that's the kind of response you get. But steel mill is an institution. I mean, it's an organization. It's the steel mill itself doesn't make the decisions. There are people within the organization who make decisions. And if you, if so, if you leave it at that, at that level, like the government is our customer or even if you say baby boomers are our customer or millennials are our customer, it's still this sort of high-level, nondescript picture of a, of a customer. So this company in particular, they, they ended up you know, realizing that environmental engineers for, within steel mills um, and then a couple other roles are the human beings who make the decisions. Uh, when you get to that level and you start to, and, and this is basically the logic of a using personas. But when you get to that level, all of a sudden you see, you see a human be- being who's making choices there. And if you ask the right questions and dig deeply enough, you, you're much more capable of, of really uncovering the real reasons why they're making the decisions that they're making. So for in this particular case, you also have background center where you can, where you can think of this human being in a particular context. This was yeah. actually around a recessionary time and budgets were tight, but also competition was heating up. We have a 
giant company here in the U.S. and well, internationally, you've seen it called Waste Management. So that was the competition for this tiny little specialty recycling firm yep. because Waste Management had the same service. However, this recycling, the small company, which is called Resource Recovery Corporation, could not get more business from their customers. So they, they were struggling over a matter of years to get customers off the fence about doing more with them. And it turns out after so kind of digging deeply into, well, what's driving the customer's choices, judging that on their, their own as a team, and then also, and then interviewing the customers in a way that really dug into it. What they found was that while they thought their small size was the main positive equity that they had because because they were small and they had a great cost model so that was good too they because they were small they were you know feisty very responsive great service and were important to their customers for those reasons it turns out that when they dug a little deeper they found out that yeah the customers loved them for their small size and responsiveness but it had another side to it. And the other side to it was the customers were questioning their financial stability, particularly in recessionary time and and more difficult economic time. Long story short, by addressing those concerns and they addressed them by bringing them evidence of here's our investments, here's our resources, here's uh, we have long-term contracts with so-and-so and so-and-so. They were able within a, a month of doing this project to turn a revenue increase that was essentially a 10% annual increase as a result of identifying that particular pain point and addressing it directly. So that doesn't happen if you're thinking about the customer as a steel mill and trying to think about why price or quality or service at very broad levels as the drivers of their decision-making. So what we mean by small ball is is really thinking about the customer at a point, at a level of you're almost looking at them in the eyes and having that direct conversation. Exactly. So how did your, I mean, what did you do in your solution then to get your customers to, to dig that deep and to, well, to build a perfect content plan out of that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So there's two, two steps that, that I think are re- really driving this and they, they, they drive the success of the process. In fact, we, one is related to customers and the, the way they seek value, but, but also how you define competitors as well. So yeah. the first is, as I just described, understanding customers in their domain, in their circumstances, as human beings making decisions. Now, and you might even get specified to the point of, well, you know, in, within the journey, well, let's just look at the awareness stage. What, is it, what does it take the, to you know, create awareness for our organization in terms of what will be the kinds of marketing content So being very specific, as I said, in in defining the customer. The second is being clear about the competition and and who it is you're competing with because very often when you start to think from that customer's perspective really explicitly, you find out that maybe you can grow more by picking a different competitor than your head-to-head competitor. And that is a strange-sounding comment, but I'll give you an example. We had a the CFO and the team for the Archdiocese of Atlanta here, so a major Catholic archdiocese in the U.S., who had a fundraising program, a scholarship program called Grace Scholars, which was a tax credit program in the state of Georgia, which means that if you gave money to this program, if you gave $2,500 to this program today, it would come off as a credit a future tax bill. 
meaning you would get the whole thing back. So you would only lose the interest on the, the dollars. And the, and the interesting thing was they were underfunded in that particular program. They couldn't get people to donate. And it was such an interesting thing. The competitor, though, that they picked to model against was not another charity in education. It was not another... It was not another charity in a broader context. They did their analysis against the competitor that they called inertia. They called the buyer's tendency to just leave the money in the bank account. And they dug into why would someone who has $2,500, you know, that could be donated, why would they not do this? And someone who had the right background, you know, was Catholic and was believer in Catholic education and that kind of thing. And as it turned out, they it actually turned out to be some some questions that they had about the commitment that the Archdiocese had to this program, but also some of these customer journey aspects like, well, I don't know the timing of when this is going to happen. It's around tax. You know, I don't want to, I just want to hold my money rather than do something that's uncertain. And I believe that working with the state of Georgia might be very, very difficult. So it could be a lot of headaches there. And so they just ended up holding on to the money. The archdiocese very quickly addressed many of these concerns by through the messaging to getting into some video to of important people within the archdiocese to show their commitment to the program, reminders and a lot of information about when the deadlines were about. They actually worked straight with the state of Georgia, so the donor wouldn't have to or would would have to minimally in one year increase donations by 70, over 70 percent to that program by thinking about this competitor called inertia. So defining that customer very specifically, defining the competitor in a way to really understand who are the true competitors being considered by that customer? And the final thing is when we initially think about what are those potential factors that are driving decisions that we want to ask about, we get very, very, very specific. So we make them extremely actionable and we state them in such a way. We want to make sure we've got the right set of what we call choice factors, but then we state them in a way that's as specific and actionable as possible so that you know if you're getting a bad score on this one, it, you largely will know what to do. So, for example, if we just have price, that's not very diagnostic. We could have low price, and that would be more helpful. And sometimes people say, well, we'd wish you had the lowest price relative to, to the competition. Or it could be something like flexible pricing, which is a surprising one that pops up a lot where customers say, yeah, price is not that important, but can you give me some more flexible terms, let's say. So getting very specific there is very, very important. So the more the framing is really all about getting a very clear sense of customer, allowing an effective and valid definition of competitors, which is who are we losing business to or who might we gain a lot of business from? And it's not necessarily the direct what you consider to be a head-to-head competitor. And then third would be when we dig into the choice, we really get specific about choice factors. Indeed. And I, and I see that on your website. So that's an interesting part. What intrigues me at the end is what in developing your solution and taking the approach that you've taken, and clearly there's a, there's a complete framework behind this, well, convert it into technology. What have been yeah, some of the um, important choices in this solution in order to make it well, what it is today and how it delivers the mm-hmm. impact? So we have two different things going on, which I think we talked about. 
briefly before. One is the original platform, which is essentially a survey platform that yeah. will analyze results in the form of the Venn diagram and allow us to do some segmentation and so forth. And that's that's one we actually, it's not sold as a SaaS product. It is an internal tool. We have some clients who get in the software to view results and, and to do some analysis, but we, we largely have a team that does that. So what's been the, the biggest insight there is the need for speed and the capability that, that our team has developed to be able to turn projects around very quickly just through a, a systematic approach approach and model, and then a platform which automatically and immediately turns survey responses into analysis and insights. That's one. On our other platform where we, we, you know, the initial platform that I just described is really all about giving us insight into competitive strategy, into positioning strategy, into where the classic sort of value proposition issues about what are our competitive points of difference, what are the points of parity, what are the competitors' points of difference, positive, and and then what are unmet needs and things that are maybe less valuable. Between and among all of those, we get very quick insight into actions that can be taken all across the marketing mix, but especially for communication. So we found that we were speaking a lot to marketing content development and strategy, value proposition that could drive communications strategy. That led us to study those marketing folks and marketing directors who are working on content today. And what we found there was that one, a lot of companies are struggling with making effective content because there's, it's a huge job. It's a huge production job requirement. And one reason for that was that they didn't have a place to kind of organize everything around the customer journey. They didn't have a platform that would precisely do that and around channels and give them insights as, as to how their content was doing. And two is the fact that so much of communications and content development, content strategy today leaves out this whole strategic concept of competitive advantage and value proposition. In other words, you have lots of companies where people all over the company are generating content and they might be case studies. They might be, here's a new technology we've developed. They might be, here are customer success stories, but they don't, aren't necessarily all speaking, singing from the same hymnal. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the whole concept here is to build the framing up front into a platform that now is one that will be used on a daily or weekly basis by marketing content directors and other leaders in marketing to help them one coordinate. And I'll tell you the third point we discovered to help one, just put everything in one place two to help drive strategy around competitive positioning and value proposition, and three, to get it, folks in the organization aligned around that strategy and the execution of it. So the platform is designed in a way that, you know, you get folks logging in and exposed to the strategy over time, but you also have a capability to kind of push out internal memos on a regular basis to really work on that alignment piece. So all of those things, you know, we sort of organically learned much of this over time, but we also have our leader in product development, Bart Frischnack, who's a, one of our vice presidents, has went through, it took us through a year and a half of discovery with research with, you know, hundreds of marketing leaders 
And that has been just been incredibly valuable, just learning what the pain points are out there and then developing a platform to speak specifically to those. You know, and just to summarize, what, what we found is a lot of indications and, and you know, we, we find this in, in many organizations, but particularly sort of mid-sized companies, difficult to make marketing content that's effective. One, and there's a variety of reasons for that. Two, the fact that it's not a big emphasis on strategy in the form of competitive strategy, driving the content and communications to kind of link everything together. And third, a lack of alignment within the organization about what we're doing. And I think relative to past eras where let's say it was TV advertising or it was print advertising, well, everybody in the company could see the TV advertising, could see the print advertising and be exposed to it. And today companies are in so many different channels different channels for different customers, different channels for different stages of the customer journey, that it's very difficult to give, it's a big Rubik's cube they're, they're managing and it's very difficult to keep folks aligned around what the overall strategy is and so forth. So the alignment piece was important and, and helping us build, build a platform where there's really a core set of features. One is that the process is built in that drives initial framing of the customer, framing of the competition as we talked about. We also have the capability up front to do a fairly fast search of, uh, based upon uh, Google metrics of this particular client brand of the search behavior of their customers, both uh-huh. in terms of overall, the overall category, in terms of specific brands, and to give them initial insights as to kind of where they're standing and what the performance is overall with the current search behavior, online search behavior of their customers, and then be able to create a place where there's one one dashboard that has all the specific personas that you've defined, and have, if you kind of think of a matrix of personas by stage in the decision journey, of allowing you to organize yourself. So first is kind of producing this this whole concept of framing and, and thinking through the human beings who are making the decisions and the different stages of the journey that they go on. Second, to organize the, what tends to be a massive amount of content and growing, by the way, as you know. And then third, once strategy has been established, to be able to continually monitor the performance, but also to be able to share insights internally to create alignment around the current strategy and information and kind of education in that sense. So that's where we've gone. The, the concepts from the our original idea are built inside this platform, but, but the platform is designed to serve a, a very functional purpose and, and to directly address several pain points we've discovered in the marketing content planning area. What is the result of this that you're seeing already with your, with your customers that are using it so far? What makes you most proud of what you've seen so far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we have lots of results for our strategy model that we're proud of. And a lot of those have been measured in terms of uh, jumps in in revenue, jumps in, in a variety of performance metrics, as well as the kind of spreading of the ideas within each organization. And so it, it really creates a different way for people to think. And that's been the part that's been most interesting to me is, is to see how we're kind of rewiring the way an organization thinks, going, moving from 
a, a framework where they're thinking about customers in very broad and vague ways and, and choices in broad and vague ways, developing their own theories about why customers do what they do. And then shifting that to much more of a micro perspective of customers and appreciating the fact that, you know, even though we, we start with maybe smaller segments of customers, that that we learn things that take big, help us take big leaps in terms of creating value for those customers more effectively than we were before. And then even generalizing some of those principles to other, other customers. On the side of our content intelligence platform that I just described, still in the early, we're beyond, I guess probably beyond the beta a beta at the moment. We're getting lots of good feedback and we've got a team that's continually adapting. It's very, it's, it's really the most agile process we've ever had with the company. So what's been good about that is we're getting a real level of co-creation from 20 to 25 core customers we have right now. And we expect to be, I mean, we have a revenue number on that product, on that platform for next year. That's pretty aggressive. So we're making very, very good progress on, on that. So from the key lessons learned so far, being on that journey, what would you advise mm-hmm. someone else to do and to think different, but based on what you've learned? So you mean specifically for our company and our journey? Obviously, we have been talking about like the whole vision behind your company. But at the end, right. I think it's right. also a lot, of, a lot of what's happening these days mm-hmm. is about evangelizing because we're building products, well, we're building solutions that are doing things that never been possible before. So at the end, yeah. it's also, of course, that on the customer side, we have to start thinking different, maybe more open in order to embrace ourselves for that. Sure. Well, you know, it's almost hard to describe this lesson, but I think we learned how powerful and how important this problem is. The, and when I said what I'm referring to is the gap between what we believe our customers are valuing and what they're actually valuing that we have really learned and reinforced the significance of that gap because I think early on, I think particularly probably our first couple of years, we've kind of suffered from the same sets of issues because we had a very strong sense. It's a little bit harder when you're in just starting the company, you're you're trying to really search for the best applications. So there were a couple of times where we assumed without getting strong validation that our platform was going to be able to be positioned as X, Y, or Z. And, you know, we went ahead too fast with it and we didn't integrate our customers into that thinking as much. So in a, in a way that was part of the challenge early on was applying our own thinking to ourselves effectively. And part of that is in kind of how the leadership is assembled and how you build in those kinds of careful assessments over time. And I think we just tried to run too quickly early on. Hopefully I've corrected a lot of that. And I think there's no question when it comes to a, a smaller company that the idea of focusing and not getting distracted by new opportunities that would, you know, appear that can appear almost any given day, right? which which can end up distracting from the core idea that you're working on. In some ways, we, we were at a little bit of risk with developing this whole new platform for content intelligence while maintaining our previous business. But we we feel like we've got a very strong sense of how those two things are connected and how one is an input to the other and, and so forth. So we, we've really tried to manage that 
the whole notion of having two different things, two different products in, in really different, somewhat different markets. But I think that that's the word focus is just absolutely critical for, for any young company because the more you focus, the more quickly you learn whether this is the right place for you or not. And it's harder to do that if you're trying to do four or five things at once or for, you know, multiple verticals, et cetera. So that word focus is consistently comes back to uh, discussions uh, over time. Yeah, I understand. And I've heard that many, many times. Stick to the vision yeah. and yeah, challenge yourself three, four times before you say yes to something else. I recently had someone else yeah, it's a great, on the podcast yeah. who said you need a you need a naysayer in your company. You need to hire someone that constantly says no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, that is a very, a very important role. I mean, and I think you need a culture where people can be honest and taking. I mean, it can be open and honest, and are now taking are taken credibly, and that you, when people raise a question about one thing or another that that's taken very seriously. And so I think it's a very healthy thing to have that, that contrarian in, yeah. in the house that will challenge the assumptions and big challenges is when you get a bunch of people who all think they have the right idea and may actually, in fact, not even have established fully what that idea is, but the, you know, let's forge ahead, you know, and let's run with it. You're going to get the customer feedback anyway, one way or another. So the quicker you get that feedback on everything you do, the better off you are. I think that's a critical one, indeed. That, that no, way, no matter what you do, you're going to get the customer feedback and better get it fast because the moment you get it at the very, very end, it could be the wrong feedback that you're, yep. that you're hoping for. Yeah. And the naysayer, yeah, by the know, way, is I'm, not about I'm, I'm, not doing things. It's about sticking to the vision in many, in many cases. Yeah. So no, what is next great, for you? Well, you know, what we're actually trying to do on, our, again, our initial business, which we, we really describe as our alignment process, is to continue to standardize it. One of the things we found is that it's interesting how, how different every, you know, every client engagement is because you have different industries or different, you know, and framing up problems is very different depending upon the industry you're in. Yeah. But we're, we're working really hard now on standardizing that process, on making it and almost creating, I, mean, I believe that there's potentially a, an opportunity to have more of an automated process that really focused on a simple kind of analysis, but could help organizations kind of learn this point that we've learned over time, that, that there are almost always systematic gaps between your beliefs about customer needs and customers' actually, actual needs. And I think we need, we need ways to spread that message more broadly. So I'll be doing some more writing on that and you know publishing some stuff, so hopefully a, a book over time, another book. And then I think that's a, a distinct opportunity for, for some online tools that are very simple and almost educational and helping companies just think about whether they initially have conversations with customers or not, but just to think about and conceptualize and frame their businesses in a way and get them to thinking, think it differently and maybe see some opportunities potentially for, for new growth, just simply because I've seen this happen just simply through the thought experiment of let me kind of deeply envision that, that customer, think about them very in a personified way. And, you know, as again, as a human being making decisions and how do they evaluate us against the, the competitor? You know, and a lot of times there, even though that analysis 
is in error to some degree. If there's 30% error, that's a big number. There's a lot of opportunity there, right? But there's still 70% accuracy there. And it's not uncommon for us to find this. So the folks do know their industries. They know their business. They know their customers. But they don't know the subtle edges of how customers are making decisions always. But even just the, the framing itself, if you take a good approach to that, even that turns light bulbs on. Yeah, that's true. Uh, among folks. So we want to try and capture capture that part, maybe a little bit more systematically, a little bit more of an automated fashion. Understood. So where can people go to find out more about your company, Venly, and say hi to you? Well, the website is venly.com, so it's V-E-N-N-L-I.com. And in fact, if you if you search us or the three circles, or if you search you know competitive strategy in three minutes, you'll find us. And how can I find you? Is it LinkedIn or is it also via the website? No, I'm actually very happy to give my email address if that's helpful. Yeah, sure. Uh, here, it would be the quickest way to get uh, get to me. And so it's joe, J-O-E dot urbany, U-R-B-A-N-Y, at venly dot com, which is V-E-N-N-L-I dot com. Oh, clear. Well, thank you very much, Joe, for your insights. It's interesting always to have someone that is on the one side having a a business angle to things, of course, running a company, on the other hand, also has a very academic side yeah. to things because of your background, of course, and your active role as a professor. I learned a lot from this, and I hope that well, my audience... Have, uh, I really appreciate the, the opportunity. Thanks for the opportunity, Tan. Well, yeah, thank yeah. you very much. Okay, take care, Tan. I will for sure, Joe. And to everybody listening today, I hope you got some insights how you can make your marketing perform better. So please share what your thoughts are about this episode. And if you like it, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Joe Urbany, co-founder of Enly. The goal of this podcast is to share compelling ideas and showcases to inspire what can be when technology and people blend in the right way. It's my strong belief that too much focus is put on automating people out of a process, in other words, cutting costs, Rather than scenarios where the unique strength of people are augmented with technology to change the established rules and to deliver a value that was unimaginable before. So, with this podcast, I want to make a contribution to change this, to create a broader awareness of what can be, to accelerate the adoption by bringing together you, a tribe of like-minded people and organizations, and lastly, to accelerate the initiatives and solutions that could be created because one idea inspires the other. So if you know about stories that are worth sharing, please send me a message. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas and that starts with you. If you want to have more information, read my blogs or obtain information on working with me, just visit me on my website valueinspiration.com. Thank you for tuning in and you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast or provide me with your feedback. I'll see you shortly in a new episode. world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. 
Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.